Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am so glad you're here. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. I'm excited to bring you today's episode of Finding Refuge. I had the pleasure and honor of interviewing Anjali Sharon. Let me tell you a little bit about who she is. Anjali is a Pakistani-American licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in trauma recovery, resilience building, and cultivating joy. She has 15 years of practice working with immigrant, South Asian, Middle Eastern, Muslim, and LGBTQI populations. Sharon received her bachelor's degree in sociology and anthropology from Mary Washington University and her master's degree from CIIS. She is trained and mentored with leading figures in trauma recovery and energy psychology, including Richard Strozzi Hutler, Stacey Haynes, and Viana Stabal. In addition to awards for academic excellence and community service, Sharon received the 2007 Emerging Leader Award from the eWomen Network and has been featured in O Magazine as a finalist for the O Magazine White House Leadership Project. Her new book is Joyous Resilience, A Path to Individual Healing and Collective Thriving in an Inequitable World. You can learn more about Anjali at her website, which is www.anjalisharon.com mft.com. And of course, her contact information is also included in the show notes. Thanks so much. Enjoy the episode. Well, thank you for being here, Anjali Shireen. It's very nice to meet you and I'm excited for our conversation. You are the author of Joyous Resilience and many other things that I'll invite you to share some about. But I just wanted to say thank you for, for being here with me. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle, on such an important podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to the show and just having a space to talk about and touch into grief, which feels so important right now and always, I would say. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I would love for you to share some about what you do in the world, um, what your work is, however you want to answer the question. Great. Um, yeah, so my work in the world, um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, um, a hypnotherapist, a somatic practitioner, um, and an energy healing teacher. And um, I work predominantly with South Asian, Middle Eastern, Black, POC, um, and LGBTQ clients. Um, and my work focuses on trauma, resilience, grief, and joy, all of which I feel like intersect and kind of build upon each other. So I want to share. I, I do individual healing work and group healing work, which I really love, because um, I think a lot of what we hold in some ways can't just mend one-on-one. It really needs the collective space, a lot like what I think your book is talking about, which I love. And then, you know, I'm also, I just want to name this because this is what the podcast is about. I'm also just a human being living in this world right now. And I think like really both the clients and with myself, like grappling with profound reasons for collective grief and individual grief. And then um, the like miracle of our human spirit that somehow we are also finding ways to stay joyous and ways to stay resilient and ways to connect and like find reason and meaning for being alive. 
at an unprecedented time or probably a time that I know most of us will never forget in our lifetime or our children or grandchildren will ask us about, you know, like we're living inside of history right this second and how we're navigating it is something that's very much top of heart and mind um, and not just theoretical, like very much a lived day-to-day processing for me and the people I work with. Maybe one more thing I'd add is um, I am I'm from Pakistan. I live in, in here in the U.S. Um, and that's a big piece of my work. And I think a lot of what I hold are people and myself who straddle two different continents or different places of being, or our hearts are in multiple places, or we have various different identities. And again, like that, like profound work it is to alchemize, transmute, like be with all of that, the complexity of it, um, without making it into like being one thing or the other, but really just holding space for multiplicity. That's something that is really important for me. I'm also someone, this is just for anybody listening who might be like, who are these people when they talk on these podcasts? And I'm also someone who after all these years of teaching and healing work still get nervous before I talk publicly. And like, I hold a lot of kindness towards myself and others in that, you know, and like normalizing of talking about our vulnerabilities. And on a playful level, I mean, I, I am a lover of pleasure and leisure and rest. I love that my Pakistani heritage taught me to like begin the day with a cup of tea relaxing, end the day with a cup of tea relaxing. Um, remember that there's more to life than work and really advocate for like connection and rest and pleasure and creativity and like just being. And I really am a big advocate of talking about that and normalizing that and encouraging each other in that. I noticed, I think on your Instagram, maybe that you are also like planting vegetables or have a garden and I'm a novice gardener in this pandemic and grew grown my first vegetables recently. So I'm also a very excited, um, I don't know, I guess like plant mama or veggie mama <laughs> in this moment. Yeah, just uh, another human being doing the work in the world. Mm-hmm. I love everything you, you named and what you just named about having a garden and being a plant mama, plant person and taking the time to rest and pause and notice and connect with self and others. And of course, what you do in the the world and how you hold space. And you spoke about this time we're, we're living through right now and how it is unprecedented. I think you're right. Um, I've, I've certainly never experienced anything like this quite like this that I'm aware of. And um, I'm wondering how it has been for you because I was a clinical social worker for 20 years in practice and, and now I'm doing more intuitive healing and not working with as many clients in that way. And I cannot imagine like, I mean, I'm holding people, but being a therapist day to day now, what that must feel like um, because I'm not doing it in the same way. And I'm curious to know how, how you are doing and how you're, how it has been to hold the grief and uncertainty and the amplification of, of um, trauma and the nervous system being overstimulated for your clients, the people you work with. How has that felt? Yeah, thank you for asking. I mean, I think, and I have named this with clients when they've asked, and I want to name it openly. I think it has actually been, I mean, I've been in practice now for like, I don't know, 17 years, 17 years. And this has been last year, Last year, especially this one, I'm getting more acclimated, the hardest year of ever being a therapist in a holder of space, mostly because, you know, generally you hope that you're doing fairly well, or if you're having hard times, like there's space between you and what you're holding. But in the past year, this is what's like profound and also very difficult. 
I am often hearing things and registering things or dealing with things, I don't know, the same day, the same hour, half a second before I'm about to enter into session and now hold space for somebody else to process that very thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like with the wildfires in California, for example, last year, which is where I am. And like, I'm waking up to that orange sky and, you know, the earth's on fire and all my feelings, but right before I'm about to enter into session and I have not had time to actually feel it through with all the political upheaval, you know, because I do work with so many um, POC clients, like the very important lives of like Black Lives Matter and like the police brutality. But again, getting that news and not even quite knowing how to process it through my own body before again, I'm holding space in group or with people around that. And then the day-to-day uncertainty of the pandemic, like our lives change on a dime and if I like kept changing on a dime over and over. So it has been incredibly hard. it has been even more crucial, I think, for that rest and self-care. Like in some ways I had to be really adamant about the time that I did have for myself to take it and to let myself lean into my support system so that I could pivot as fluidly as I could to hold space for others. I also think that in a funny way, it actually is very heart opening because in some ways, I think that we do heal when we sit with other people, like we heal with each other. and so helping the other process through. It's not as if we're so different as human beings. My clients grief and fear and uncertainty as they're processing and I'm holding space. In a way it felt like I'm also holding space for that part of myself inside that has to go through that. And it was in some ways helpful to come in from that adult, the higher self to hold space for another, like to have that be where I went in times of crisis and upheaval, because I think it was settling for my system then. It was easier to come back to myself and go, okay, I'm not alone. You know, we're all feeling this thing together. Like there is a way to be with it, with each other. And a profound opening of compassion. And like, I think breaking down all those barriers that people have in their minds. A lot of times, you know, the, the like therapist is a professional up, up over here. They don't necessarily have these issues. And it's like, no, we're all in this collective. And I was very open about sharing. Like I too feel vulnerable and scared. And it's absolutely okay to feel that way and angry and rageful and uncertain and like not sure of the next steps. And I want to talk about that openly, kind of like with grief, right? Like you want to name it and have a space for it is the only way that we're going to survive this together. Um, and it's just like together um, in it. So yeah, it was hard. It was very rich. It continues to be that way. I think it's human nature to get acclimated. So, you know, there's different cycles of grief. I noticed though this year, it's a little bit less, partly because of political transitioning as well. Not that everything is fine, but last year was very hard politically too, um, in a different way. So yeah, very rich, very hard, very human time. Everything you just named really brings me to joyous resilience. And as I was looking through your book, First of all, there are a lot of similarities. I'm so glad we're here having this conversation. I was like, oh, I talk about intersectionality and social location too, and intergenerational trauma. And from being a therapist for a long time, so much of it resonated. So it was I'm wonderful. So I was like, oh. This well, is- your book, I've been referring your book to my clients lately being like, yes, collective grief. Yes, yes, we have to make space for that here. <laughs> Go yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's just, it was, I know a lot of people do this work and there was a lot of resonance because of your identities, not that we share all the same identities, but um, there are some similarities. And so I really appreciate all that you brought together in Joyous Resilience and your own storytelling and the practices and tools you offered. And I want to hear some about, you know, a lot of times people, or, or this is how I've been 
conditioned to think about resilience, that it's in response to trauma, to, you know, going through what we're going through right now, and that it comes from this place of learning how to survive and, and potentially thrive. And I, I do think it, it can come from that place, like, we may be able to draw on strength, or source in a way that uh, we didn't know we could, because we're in a situation that feels traumatic and is something we haven't faced before. Mm-hmm. But what you're connecting is, is resiliency with joy. And I would love for you to talk some about the relationship between the two mm-hmm. um, and how you're, how you're thinking about this, because I was so intrigued by the title of your, your book. And it made me think about, and the, the content, the reframe of resilience. So not just necessarily being connected to, to trauma, right? That's the framing many people offer, but that there's more there. So I'd love for you to share some about joyous resilience and how, how you came to it. There's a lot to answer in that one. So I'm going to be like, okay, I'm going to trust whatever wants to come will come. That's a great question. Um, let me think. I think the first thing is that I'm not, yeah, I think like joyous resilience felt really important because even in my own therapeutic work, you know, I mean, for my own therapy, like that began, I feel very lucky and privileged. Like it began about 20 something years ago, which was nice to have it come that early. Um, but no one actually talked to me about joy the first decade plus of my own personal work, like no one said like, oh, you're here and we hope that you will connect with your joy and your aliveness and all of that. I mean, it was about trauma and what's hurting and let's just help you manage, survive, um, feel better, you know, um, but not necessarily like what happens after that point. And I mean, that was wonderful. It was wonderful to have tools to understand what was happening inside of me and to be able to have better relationships and to, you know, know what I wanted and go after it, um, to make direct requests, like all of these life skills that are so crucial and that do bring more peace. And I think build healthier relationships. But I did come to a point where I realized like, especially because at least for me, a lot of the attention was going towards work, you know, like even the like personal therapy, because I'm a therapist, it was all like workshops and healing things and very useful, but all training to be a therapist and do that. And it did bring me aliveness and joy. But I think what was missing in some ways after a while was like, A, what makes me like just actually the self thrive. Um, I started to feel dull is the right word but like constricted or flat or like this desire for more but not really knowing where to look because I've done this healing and okay I can go back in here to this boredom and and I can be with it or this dullness or apathy but like I don't quite know what's missing and for me it was really even just centering the word joy like going what gives you joy or pleasure that's not the one I didn't hear a lot about what gives you pleasure and like pleasure beyond like um hedonism or acquiring of things you know like uh let me just fulfill this with like a short-term quick thing I'll buy this I'll eat this I'll do this but like a real sense of thriving and thriving like I said beyond my vocation in the world but as a whole expression of me so it came from actually struggling with like why am I still feeling flat like why am I feeling constricted and then asking what brings joy what brings pleasure and then I talk about in the book like it ended up actually like through asking of myself and also clients, because oftentimes, I don't know if you find this, whatever you're working on, life gives you other people who are working on that. And then again, you start to learn through their journey. That asking them these questions and myself, I realized like how much the word joy is taboo 
like how hard and difficult it was for people to go really like joy or uh, happiness, especially like happiness, I think is another bad word, it's like, or pleasure, um, you know, like for, especially for women, it's like, that's taboo. Are we really sure we want to go towards that? Um, especially in like activist culture, again, like how does that reconcile with the work in the world and suffering? So the amount of stuff in the way of even talking about or going, why are we here? And if we are not here to also be joyous and alive, then like, why would you want to be around year after year? You know, that like we actually need that to feel a desire to go forward. And then how much of it was actually buried in childhood for a lot of people, not everybody, because I think trauma and child trauma can often cut that off pretty quickly. Exactly. But that like, like for me, you know, growing up in Pakistan, some of the joy I had, I was lucky enough that when I was younger, I was allowed to, because it is a pretty patriarchal culture. There's a lot mm-hmm. of norms around gender that make it hard to express yourself through your body, especially if you're in a feminine body. But I was allowed to play sports and like ride my bike and things like that all the way up until age 12 when I hit puberty. And for me, some of this questioning like was like realizing, oh my God, like I've forgotten about when I used to ride my bike or like just be out and about like using my whole body. And how much pleasure and joy and expression and aliveness I got from that, which had nothing to do with talking. Because some of the therapy was about, you know, talking and exploring and ideas. But this was like, you know, just full on body expression. And like, there's something I got from it that is irreplaceable, that no amount of talking that's going to touch other parts of me. So that was an example of awakening to, you know, that dual sort of like, I knew what made me feel alive when I was younger, just that one simple thing. It got taken from me by culture and patriarchy and all those, yeah, all those like sexist norms and like oppression. And then I forgot. So I came to America, you know, a country where I could ride my bike and all that, but I, I forgot. And I also felt shy. I thought it was shy, but actually it was shame because I was taught to feel ashamed of my body or like wearing shorts or like riding my bike freely. Like all that stuff was taboo. And so even when I came here and I thought I'm so free and liberated, it took years to actually recognize not like I want to do that thing but I keep telling myself I can't and so all of that coming back and then starting to dance again to bike again um, to kayak like to just move my body freely climb trees again like these simple things that nobody's ever going to tell you not society not capitalism hey by the way if you just walk outside and like free your limbs and move how you want like what and like what an act of like political revolution that is what an act of like turning over the things that have uh, you know just like oppressed you cut you off from your true knowing that is and what a reclamation of joy it is because the smile on my face like when I biked again for the first time Michelle and I remember like it was like that little girl just came right out and it's like I'm free and I can go anywhere and it's just all of those body feelings and that's just one tiny example of reclamation of joy and going I need to ask myself this and other people this more often. What brings you joy? What lights you up? Let's trust that joy could motivate you towards all kinds of action, including individual and political action versus guilt. As if we have to feel bad in order to do what produces wellness versus we have a profound love inside. And when we're feeling joyous, like that can actually fuel all of those powerful acts in the world. So that's, And that is making me resilient. That bike ride makes me feel like I can thrive again. It reminds me of what is alive in me. It reminds me I have power to make myself feel good. To me, resilience, and the book talks about this, right, are those four inner voices inside of us, our inner nurturer, our inner protector, who's our boundary setter, 
Um, our soulful self who reminds us we have we are something beyond this body and we're interconnected. And our creative, playful, pleasureful self who reminds us that like we can feel good from the inside. And that feeling that way is not a wrongness. It actually lets us know we can be safe in this world and like we can actually have that wellness to come back to even inside of a world that has so much pressure. So to me, those four voices and cultivating them produces resilience. Trauma or no trauma, for sure. The trauma, that is the healing work to, to reclaim those and build them and help us thrive. I also would say in this world now, like again, you have to hold a pretty powerful position of privilege not to have some trauma, but let's just assume that there's plenty of us who have all different kinds of individual and collective trauma and need these reminders that resilience is in the inside and that focusing on joy and resilience is a requirement in some ways if we're going to thrive in this life. And it is a devotion to focus there, not just for your sake, but because then you'll permission everybody else around you to do the same and work towards that. So it's a long answer, but those were some of the things that kind of came and, you know, everything kind of grew, grew from there. And why I love asking this question and why I see people really thrive when they begin to ask it and they work through all the myths and blocks that are usually external ones that they've been taught from ever being allowed to go here for themselves. Yeah, I'm nodding because I mean, so much of what you said resonated in my own experience, but also in just being human with other humans that so many of us are conditioned to cut off from joy in the way you talked about and having an experience of joy and then something happening or, or some message that we internalized coming in that makes us feel like we're not, we're not worthy of joy or we should feel it or it's bad to feel joy or, or um, engage in things that bring joy, right? I mean, there are many factors that contribute to this. So I was thinking what you named, I'm sure will resonate with a lot of the listeners um, because I think a lot of people have had that experience of then having to remember, oh, I am allowed to feel joyful and what does bring me joy and what does it feel like when I engage in the things that bring me joy, right? That wisdom. So I, I loved all of that and the differentiation between being shy and feeling shame too, like learning that, um, yeah, that was, it just struck me. It's so powerful because the work one might do in response to feeling shy, right? Maybe different than the work one might do in response to shame or the practices one might engage in and just that narrative, you know, no, this is internalized shame, right? And this is how it's manifesting at this time. So really appreciated what you named about that. And I have a question about your ancestors, because in my experience of writing, finding refuge, I channeled their message through many of the stories and the people that have written about in finding refuge. And it was definitely a, the ancestors were with me the entire time I was writing it and directing me and even seeded the idea to um, elevate a conversation about grief in particular collective grief. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to know two things and, and you can answer however you want or, uh, or just respond to one that I'm curious about um, your ancestors and their resilience and how you embody their resilience, mm -hmm. if that feels resonant. And, and also if you feel like they are embodied in joyous resilience, that the book, right. That I got to hold and, and read earlier. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a deep question. One actually, like no one's asked me that yet. Um, so thank you for asking it. And I, 
I mean, I think I've thought of it and I've asked of that directly, you know, like speaking of ancestors in that way. I mean, I think growing up in Pakistan, it's definitely a culture which very much is a familial culture. It's very much a culture where you honor your family and you think about your lineage and all of that. So in that sense, it is something that is there. Whether you speak of it overtly or not, it's very much. You're not just yourself. You are your family name. So it's that kind of a culture. But not necessarily like hear more. I hear about the ancestors and let's speak of them. So that language is not necessarily the one that I grew up with, but I, I hold both. And I think what I'd say is, well, two things at uh, the like dedication of the book, if you'll see, is to my parents. And I, I'm not going to say ancestors, but I would say, okay, like next generation back. And it talks about a love that like set me free. And I think right there, a love that sets us free, like a love that goes, okay, you go and you do what you need to do, right? And I love you and I'm not pulling my connection away from you, um, but I am allowing you to find who you are and to let that come forward. That has been a profound gift. And I think that is one of the gifts of like, in order to be resilient, that inner, that those, those inner voices I spoke to, the nurturer, the protector, the soul self, resilient self, in a way they're coming together and they're permissioning us to go, look inside and see who you are and like let that part be expressed and know that that is your purpose in the world, is part of your gift in the world. And even if it is scary, even if it means you are going down a track that your family, your culture has not gone down before, there is something there. And that I think, that is a rare gift still, I would say in this world, it is a rare way to love because I think Oftentimes, out of fear, out of trauma, out of intergenerational trauma, out of cultural trauma, out of historic trauma, we have been taught, and certainly in Pakistan, I'm going to just center that for a moment, but I think across many cultures, love means you do what I want you to do. You stay in the way that I want you to be. And if you love me, then you would do that. And if you go your own way, then you do not love me. So that that bind, that, that, that impossible bind to be in which is a profound trauma. If trauma is a break in safety and a break in connection, that is one of the biggest traumas, right? That the people around me, my community, I have to be estranged from if I have to be true to myself. Or if I have to have connection, then I have to estrange myself from myself. So it's kind of going in a different track than maybe you thought, but what I would say the gift that they gave me overall is the ability to be true to myself and still stay connected as much as possible. And I think that that has produced a lot of resilience and the fact that I'm even here in this country, in the US, and they are in, in, our, in our home country. Because to have a daughter leave at a young age and to go on her own, it's outside the norms, still some degree of, of our, our culture. I also would really want to honor, I feel very grateful for what, however that was the like spirit inside of my mom and even my like grandmother on my paternal side. like. It is not a culture and they were not born into families necessarily that encouraged them to really blaze their own path. And I really want to honor my mom because she grew up in a very conservative environment and family. And I, this is what makes me wonder a little bit, Michelle, about just like our own personal spirit or something, because on paper, there is nothing in the family that would go, yes, and in this family would be born this person and they would assert this much autonomy and this much freedom. it does not add up on paper. So I'm like, what is that spirit inside that in her went, I am going to work in a culture, in a place, in a city where that was, again, pretty taboo or unheard of. Um, you know, I'm going to wear what I want to wear. That's a big thing back home. Like, you know, but this, this lady in a very conservative town is wearing her jeans and her skirts. Like that's just above and beyond like what happens. It's a very conservative time. 
I'm gonna um, not only work, but she was, you know, like I'm gonna work throughout my marriage. I'm gonna raise my daughters and same for my dad. Maybe they can do whatever they want to do. Again, very different. I want to honor my dad who stayed home to raise us while she worked. Again, like just mind-boggling, and something that he got a lot of flack for actually from family and from the culture. And yet. That meant that I grew up again, knowing people can be who they want to be. I can do what I want to do. Like just this inst- installation of profound resilience and confidence as a girl growing up in a patriarchal society. And it really shows us how much parenting can do, no matter what that outside world is doing, how much is two together or one can do for a child. So, and then I want to honor whatever it is, like the unknown ancestors, like whoever it was before them and before them who carried all of that, who maybe couldn't actualize all of it, but who led for them to be freer than any before and who really led for then me and my sisters to be freer than any who've gone before. And so I am really grateful for you to ask the question because you're just making me feel the gratitude. Like I, I'm fully knowing of that I would not be sitting here as free as I am doing what I do, working with the people I do if it was not for that. Or it would have been even harder, much, much, much harder. And so then as we are the ancestors of the future generations, how important it is for us to keep liberating ourselves and like allowing for a life force to come forward because that is what the future generations also want, right? It's just that like allowance um, to exist and to shatter the things that have shackled us. Yeah, I love everything you shared about your your family and ancestors and you know the ways in which some of them did things that were counter to what the culture had conditioned them to do. And in their way, we're finding a way to be free. And as you said, to show you, you could be who you want to be, to do what you want to do, which I think is such a powerful teacher and lesson and experience. And what you just said about us being living ancestors and what we will leave, right? What we want to offer to future generations. One of my friends and and teachers, Octavia Rahim, she wrote um, Gather, and she has a book coming out called Pause, Be, Rest. Mm-hmm. And I went to one of her workshops once, and she, or her, her experiences, it wasn't really a workshop, and she was leading us through deep rest practices. She asked a question about what was your ancestors' relationship with rest? Mm-hmm. And she also said, you're resting. And for many of us in the room, we came from marginalized identities, she was saying you're resting for them. They didn't have the space to rest. And so when you talked about us being living ancestors, it again struck me and made me think about what can we practice now, like connecting with pleasure and joy and our resilience and the reframing around resilience and allowing um, so that there's more of that in the future for um, the generations that will come after um, we are no longer here in these incarnations of, of ourselves. So Absolutely. Really brought that in for me. And I'm also thinking about, we spoke about this at the beginning, the like time we're moving through right now, the time and space and all the things happening. And I'm, I'm curious to know um, what you feel like, what tools, what resources, and there are a lot in the book, but what do you feel like we most need to be practicing right now, given the conditions that are in place and, and the level of uncertainty, I'll say, which we've named as different than any other time? In our lifetime, at least, I guess. But yes, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I mean, 
I think what I'd say what, what comes every time, and I'm going to tie it to also grief, because again, like this time grief, they overlap. And I'd love to hear what you would say as the first practice. For me, it has been um, breath and allowance. So it's like, I have to allow myself to feel what I feel inside of this, especially that uncertainty or fear, like instead of hardening against it, which is so understandable. But even if I'm hardening against it, even if I'm going, mm, like, I don't want to feel it, I'm so scared. I'm going to breathe into that and I'm going to allow that. Um, and and the practice that I do, it comes from um, 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 Tonglen practice, which is in the like Buddhist tradition, right? Um, and, and Tonglen, for those who don't know, is simply a practice of you're really breathing in and you're allowing whatever is difficult or painful or hurting, whatever it is right now in the world or within yourself to actually touch you, to actually feel it through. And then exhaling and sending it whatever it is that you think it might mean. And what I find is most useful is in the beginning to actually just send yourself or whatever it is that that's happening, the allowance of it's okay to feel this. It's okay that this is happening. Like, there's nothing wrong with you for feeling this. I am here with you. Let's feel this. And what's beautiful in Tonglen is that generally you feel it on behalf of you, but you also open to all the other people. There's been you know, so many of us who in this moment are feeling probably that exact same thing. And when you exhale, you send them whatever it is that you most hope that they would need to receive. And why I love that is because what I found is uh, you probably have heard this story of the two arrows of suffering that like something happens and we suffer, right? And then right after that, we send another arrow after it, which is the arrow of judgment about how we're feeling about this painful thing. And what I love about Tonglen and bringing other people in, and I don't know about you, but even for me, it when I bring other people in, I think, oh my God, they're suffering and what would I want them to know? And I, my heart opens much more rapidly. And I'm like, of course, I want them to know it's okay to feel this way and I understand it. And then in that moment, it shatters my shame, any shame or judgment of myself of feeling that thing in the moment. And I recognize like, I feel this way, others feel this way, and we are joined in it. Um, so that practice has really helped, Michelle, especially, honestly, with anxiety, because I think anxiety is probably anxiety and stress. That's what we call it in, in our cultures. You know, that's what people recognize first. Like I'm anxious, I'm stressed. Like what we don't realize is that's actually the like tip of what's under it is I'm grieving. I'm scared. It's uncertain. I, I, I need that breath and that allowance. And it's by doing that, that anxiety dissipates. And yes, then you're feeling the grief, but there is this profound, there is a peace or a relaxation or a relief that comes from just feeling it through. And yes, nothing is solved. I mean, the pandemic goes on. I don't know when I'm going to go back to my office and see my clients. I don't know when I'm going to see my parents, like all of these many things. But my heart has more openness and breath and peace. And that is the resilience I need to go on. And then I think, I don't want to hear from you. It feels like it also usually opens at least me up to a wider and vaster perspective. I would call it the souls or spiritual perspective. Like something about like something opens up about some meaning or some purpose or just some like being with this thing that's happening right now, but knowing that it's part of a continuum and not everything um, or that there is a way. This also helps to connect and help each other during this time. And I think that's the other antidote is like, to reach out, to reach out, to like connect, uh, to go, if I'm feeling this way, so are you, and maybe we can be closer through this. And that, that is something to hold on to. Um, those are the two that I can think of right now. And I'd love to hear what you'd say. 
Yeah, um, I was teaching last night and and was talking about tunneling meditation. I'm so I'm really glad to hear you you brought that in and shared what it is for people who may not be familiar with it because I think it's such a powerful practice. Um, and so it's when I practice in meta meditation. Um, mm-hmm. Loving kindness is another mm-hmm. practice. I've practiced for a long time, but a little more <laughs> recently to keep mm-hmm. the heart open. And I so appreciate what you said about tongue meditation and connecting to what may feel difficult for us or maybe causing suffering. Mm-hmm. And also there's a connection to other beings who are feeling the same way, potentially feeling the same way and wanting to be with those feelings and also think about what we can offer in response to those, not just to ourselves, but to ourselves, but to others as well, which I think is, it might be one reason I really love meta meditation too, because there is this offering out um, and prayer really is how I think about meta meditation. And um, the, the other practice or awareness, this, I guess it could be called a practice, um, I've really been remembering this happened about a year ago. I was um, well outside walking my dog, Jasper, who you've seen come through a couple of times. <laughs> He's like making his, his way through. Um, and I had this feeling um, and I said to myself, oh, my grandmother lived through a pandemic, um, which she did. And I, I thought, oh, um, I have her blood inside me and it, it's making me think about resilience and the capacity to respond, even if we don't really know how, but to like respond and show up and be present and to know we aren't alone in this, but that others before us have been through similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, it can feel like we are the only ones who are, who've been through this. And I think for me, that feels isolating and I draw strength from remembering my grandmother did this like, and, and she, she lived, right? And I got to meet her as my grandmother and she was a big part of my life. And so it was really, I'm sure she was speaking to me in that moment to send that reminder, mm-hmm. um, but it was really powerful. So it's, I've been thinking about that um, how she's inside me and also how I'm bigger than my body too. Mm-hmm. I keep coming, I'm like, you're, you're not your body. You're in a body. Mm-hmm. You're bigger than your body. Your spirit is much more expansive. And um, I bring that into meditation and sometimes sitting meditation or moving meditation. And it's really powerful for me to remember I'm spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a spirit spirits inside me and it connects me to something bigger that's beyond my body. Um, so I think that's helped decrease some of the anxiety. And lastly, I, when you talked about anxiety and stress and, and then the grief that's actually underneath that and, and getting to the heart of what's going on, um, I've been feeling very angry about the world and um, my deep desire for us to take care of each other and really feeling heartbroken about the ways in which I feel like we're not, the collective is, is not actually seeing itself as a collective and caring for each other and caring for the most vulnerable people. Um, and so it's like walking around feeling angry. And then yesterday I said, you're grieving. <laughs> like you are, yeah. yes, you may feel angry, but really this is like deep heartbreak and grief. So naming the thing as the thing, you know, is a helpful practice too. And it, it's a practice because sometimes people may not recognize this is grief. Yes. instead be like, this is stress, this is anxiety, this is depression. And, and some of that may be there. That's like, what is underneath that? And often 
some loss is connected to that and a process of grieving needs to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that you brought in the anger. I mean, though there's so much powerful medicine in that anger too, but I think you can still access that medicine once you go under and the grief. And then once you go under that and the heart comes back and then there can, can still be that fierce compassion that comes different than the helpless anger, which of course I fully understand. Like, I think it's a good reminder to be like, yeah, underneath that it's heartbreak, heartbreak and fear. That's what we say in therapy, right? Like secondary emotion is anger. Primary emotion is usually you're afraid or you're hurt. You're really hurt. You know, how smart that you got angry on top of that as a way to kind of move that. I also just got chills. I want to tell you, I loved your story about your grandmother. Like you just like somewhere between chills and tears. That's so profound and so true. And you made me realize, I mean, yeah, like, actually resilient stories, like you said, of our family or historic resilient stories, that does help. And, you know, I mean, there's like a plethora of like World War II stuff and the Spanish influenza stuff that has started to come out. And I'm honestly, like, it is true that I will sometimes go to that and like, actually be like, okay, well, at least it's not that. Okay, like, you know, we're not in that World War, though in many ways we are, but in different ways. They're mostly just like how people have survived and that life continued and then some things did get better and out of that new laws and new care came and how we really are in that again it's kind of eerie in some ways um the collective could be moved towards taking better care of the collective through this process but yeah i think really reaching back and remembering what i love what you said is that it's in your blood right it's in your blood and then Sometimes I like to think about like, in the end, we all share that same blood. Like in the end, if you go all the way back, like what not has been survived. And if we go even further back and go, we share DNA with the trees. And I'm like, there's so much more involved than we. I'm like, we share DNA with the trees and we share DNA with the dolphins. And like, that gives me resilience to be like, like I said, we are beyond this body and we have all these beings who've survived and, you know, will continue to, I hope, like life will go on. Um, but that that's what's within us. Life will go on and that does help. That does help to know there is more and we can draw on more. So mm-hmm. I would just encourage everybody. I would love to hear where all the resilient stories people are tapping into because we have them. Yeah, we do and need to be reminded of them, okay? mm-hmm. especially in times when we're, we, we can't remember our own. Um, so yeah, I love this invitation for people to share their their resilient stories. Um, And it was so beautiful what you named about our DNA and the trees and the dolphins and nature, the expansiveness of nature. I always talk about nature because it's a big, it's a space where I go that where things make sense and they, they feel bigger than me, right? I can feel that I'm in this body, small, the planet is big and it's around me, um, which is, is helpful. Um, and again, that that expanding out versus like contracting or or feeling like I'm limited in some way. Yeah, it feels I like refuge and resilience. So yeah, refuge like, like where you're going for refuge is out, and I would go like, and that is where resilience comes back, right? Like it is in those places of refuge. Whether you take refuge in stories of like, I, I was just thinking like, what a lovely collective grief circle to go. Let's share our grief, and then let's also we're going to alternate share story of a resilience around grief and then and then the grief and then resilience around grief and the grief and we're going to do this sitting with something way bigger than us and how all of that provides a container to hold something that is otherwise just too much too much for the body to process but it needs 
collective bodies, bigger bodies, alternating stories, all of and permissioning, all of that to actually be allowed to flow. So I don't know, you know, I'm like, I think your, your book is providing that, like this conversation. And it just makes me eager to actually see. I'm like, I want to be part of those spaces. I want to have more of those spaces. We can do this if we do it in those ways. Um, and I think we have in many cultures over time anyway. This is not new, just forgotten. Yes, I say that a lot. Like we need to remember people were sitting in circle before. <laughs> like if we, if we trace back, this is a practice that people engaged in all the time in circle and in community with um, each other around celebration, around death, around the, the seasonal change, around the elements. This is not new. And so many things have gotten in the way of us remembering. And this is a good lead in to my, I think this is my, my final question for now, because I would love to stay in community with you. Um, oh. I've really loved this, this conversation in time. Um, you, shared, you shared some when you shared about your garden. I know that you, there's a section about the nurturer and joyous resilience. And I would love for you to share about how you're nurturing your spirit at this time, your soul, your spirit. Mm, gosh, well, I mean, some of them I've named, because like I said, I know it may not be popular. I, I know you wrote about that too. The grief is not always popular, but it is true that I think it is very nourishing. I think of myself as like, like this is the most loving parent we can be. Every time I do stop and I even feel the teeniest bit of that anxiety rising and I go, I mean, I can feel a part of me being like, I just want to go work. Like, let's just keep going. And then I go, no, I'm going to stop and I'm going to breathe and I'm going to help you feel this and I'm going to bring it down. So it's not the most fun one, but I will tell you, Michelle, it is the one that makes the rest of my day more fun. I had no idea how many times tiny little bits of me are like showing me like I'm getting a little, you know, like something goes a little awry. I heard, I saw a piece of social media news very quickly even, and then I got off, but it lingered inside of me or I'm just looking out and something happens. And like, just knowing that I will turn in and I will breathe and I'll help myself feel that through, that is profoundly nurturing. Um, and then I think um, I'll, I think what I'll put is on play, which like that has been really helpful. So an outdoor play, I mean, again, I'm very lucky. I do live in California, so thankfully we have, besides wildfires and all of that, plenty of days where it's actually been sunny or warm enough that I could at least go outside and do some safe play. You know, so, and I've made the most of that this past year in something. So like going to farms and picking fruit, more fruit than I can eat and sharing it, you know, widely. Um, going for hikes and walks, going by the water. Um, recently, I kayaked for the first time and I really loved it. And so just thinking about how can I get my body on the water and being there. Um, a lot of nature, just like you, a lot of nature because it's right there. Um, and maybe one more would be um, sitting so just sitting and looking, again, probably not a very popular one, but like instead of sitting and looking at the phone or even reading, and I'm an avid reader, I could read for hours, or like sitting in, it's just allowing myself to sit and like look at something beautiful. It feels like being a kid again, um, sitting in the grass, smelling, like being with my senses. Yeah, just like finding new things to learn and do through my hands, through activity, like anything like that that just keeps it like the life force alive because a lot of the things that I love like like dancing like dancing with like other people traveling many of those it is true are gone but to be outside to get to play and move my body to like 
run, to bike, to kayak, to climb, like all those things I mentioned, those are still here. Getting my hands in the dirt and like looking at all the creatures, that is really exciting. And I will say, I mean, I just saw my first melon. It was like this tiny growing. And I cannot tell you, Michelle, how excited I am to have like a full grown melon. I've never seen it, you know, grow. And it brings so much delight. So anybody listening, I knew nothing about this stuff. And, you know, you just, the, the seeds know what to do. Go for it. It's so exciting. And it's just so resilience building to watch life grow and be a part of it. And I know what you're, this feeling, I'm growing butternut squash for the first time, which I don't yeah. think is that difficult to grow, but I've never grown it before. And I went out and saw a little <laughs> butternut squash and was so excited. And then I found another one yeah. um, and I grew corn for the first time this year. And it was so sweet and yummy. And so I, I understand the joy that comes from that. And, and so powerful what you said about the seeds know what to do. Mm-hmm. Like we are seeds, right? So the seeds know what to do. I love it. And, and centering growth during a time when there's so much stuff that's happening. Right. And a reminder that we feel a full range of emotions and are having many different experiences as we are alive at this time. So I really appreciate you and want everyone to get a copy of joyous resilience and to read it and work with it and work with the practices. Um, and thank you so much for being here. And if there's anything, I'll put the web, your website in the show notes, but if there's anything you want to share about what's coming up in the fall that you want folks to know about, you can share that now. I think actually what I would share is if, if you buy the book or even if you don't, if you enjoy the conversation and you're really wanting to build these voices inside to nurture your resilience, um, if you go to my website, which Michelle will, will have up, um, you will see that there, that there will be nine guided resilience meditations and I can put the link in there and those are free. And so just let yourself use them with or without the book to start to cultivate this, everything that, that Michelle and I talked about today, basically those voices from within that can help you ride through these times. Um, also, when you get those meditations, that's a way then that um, you will be able to be in touch with me and you will hear about the Doris Resilience Groups, which will practice a lot of this in the coming year. And then I do, I do hope that you buy the book and find it useful. Um, and I think it's a great compliment to Michelle's book as well. So I'm like, I am both and enjoy the practices. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the offering of the meditations. And I'll put the link in the show notes for that. And thank you so much for, for being who you are and elevating a conversation about joyous resilience and bringing your medicine to us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having this wonderful podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So, as you all may know, I have a new book out, Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief, published by Shambhala Publications. It was published on July 13th, 2021, and can be found anywhere where books are sold. Along with the book, You can join me for some offerings focused on finding refuge and focused on collective grief, ritual, and processing trauma, allowing it to move through so that we can get free. We'll explore the connection between grief and liberation. You can support the podcast Finding Refuge by telling your friends about it and rating it on iTunes. You can support my work in the world by becoming a patron on Patreon. You can find me there as Michelle C. Johnson, Skill in Action. 
I offer monthly Dharma talks, rituals, meditations, or movement practices. I hope you join me there. Take care. Be well, friends. Thank you.